Good morning. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Thank you, Cheryl, for reading. Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Go ahead and turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning. I do have a couple of announcements before we jump in. However, the first announcement is that my iPad is dead. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, if you didn't grab one of the little uh, cups like I didn't do uh, for communion, um, I'm going to go grab mine right now, actually. 
If you didn't grab one of these little cups, go ahead and do that so that you can take communion with us here at the end of the service. I almost forgot that would be difficult to lead you in communion without having the elements myself. Uh, So yeah, go ahead and make sure you've got that. We are uh, finishing up collecting school supplies for the Sand Hill School Supply Drive. Uh, If you've been collecting items for that, you can go ahead and dump them back in the back today, or you can bring them to the church office tomorrow. We'll be taking them through tomorrow. Uh, Or you can give a financial donation. We'll use the funds to go and buy the supplies that are left over that are needed. Then finally, after uh, after the service today, we're going to stack the chairs up again. If you would help us with that, stack the chairs up in the seat to the furthest, uh, furthest to the outside of the row that you're in. Did I get that right? Is that what we're talking about here? All right, furthest to the outside. So if you're here, stack the seats this direction. If you're over here, stack the seats this direction. We're going to be replacing some light bulbs in the sanctuary throughout the week. And so it uh, would be very helpful if you could help us out with that. And uh, if you can, we need some folks who can uh, help set, reset everything at 6.30 p.m. this Thursday night. So uh, feel free to show up this Thursday night, 6.30 p.m. to help us reset. If you have questions, you can talk with Stephanie about that. All right, so let's jump in. We've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes over the last couple of weeks in a series called The Good Life. And a key question that we've been looking at and asking is this, what is the good life? So far, we've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes that riches, nor power, nor self-indulgence, nor work, nor leisure, nor even wisdom necessarily leads to the good life. In fact, by this point of the book, it seems almost as if there's not really any good life to speak of. Life is hard, and it's full of difficulty. So towards that end, I want to ask you a question this morning. How's your face doing lately? And I don't mean like, Did you stop in the mirror this morning to make sure you got all the crusties out of your eyes? Some of you didn't. I didn't want to say anything before the service. Uh, Some of you forgot that. Uh, Or or stop to like undo the damage that the night had, had done to you. I mean, what is your countenance like? Like what does your face communicate to the world that your heart is feeling? Does it communicate joy? Maybe you've got a big smile on your face. Does it communicate sorrow? Maybe your face is downcast and long with sadness. Does it communicate fear? Maybe your eyes are big with worry. Does it communicate frustration and anger? Maybe you've, your face is stuck in a bit of a scowl. As one of my kids' favorite books says, are you a pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face for spreading dreary wearies all over the place? Anybody read that one? Nobody's going to complete that last line? Blub, blub, blub can't believe you wouldn't go there. Anyway, that's the life stage I'm in. I, I, I asked this because I found in myself a number of weeks ago that my face wasn't doing so well. I was a bit irritable. I was a bit grumpy. I was agitated. Thank you, Tiffany and kids, for not saying amen to that. I appreciate it. Do you ever feel like this? As Solomon describes in our passage today, like your, like your face is hard. There's plenty in this life to weary our hearts and to harden our faces. Life is filled with heartache and toil and injustice. And as Solomon said, I just can't get no satisfaction. It's the great Mick Jagger, but he and Solomon sound a lot alike. Anyway, the point is this, life under the sun is difficult and it impacts our hearts deeply. And that shows on our faces. But in Ecclesiastes chapter eight, Solomon says there is something that can change that. Look with me at chapter eight, verse one. A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. 
There's something about wisdom that infiltrates your heart and inoculates it against the worries and the concerns and all the stuff that's going on in your life, such that it shows on your face. Now, that seems to contradict some of the other stuff that we've read from the book of Ecclesiastes so far. Just last week, we read, a sad face is good for the heart. That doesn't sound a lot like a face shining. All the way back in chapter 1, for in much wisdom, there is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It doesn't sound like wisdom leading to a shining face. Yet in chapter 8, it says wisdom makes the face shine. One thing we learn about wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes is that it's a, it's a pretty complex thing. It doesn't necessarily make life rainbows and butterflies, but I do think one thing that God's wisdom can do for us is to get down into our heart and settle us, bring a, a steadiness to us such that it changes our demeanor. Like maybe you know somebody like this. I remember a good friend of mine in, in Baton Rouge. His name was Keith. I love the man dearly. And there was something about being in Keith's presence. Right, like even when his family was enduring intense difficulty, he was having trouble with his girls or he would you know, have something going on with his marriage where maybe there was some tension going on there. When you sat down with Keith, he was present. He was all together and he was unshaken. He was, he was steady. And I think that's what Ecclesiastes is talking about here. In our passage, Solomon takes that short proverb, a wisdom, A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed and he applies it to three circumstances from his day that could harden one's face. I'm not sure if they would be relevant for you so I decided to put them up on the screen uh, to kind of help us wrap our mind around them. I don't know if any of these happen in our world today. The first was this, foolish governing authorities. Anybody? (laughs) The second is hypocrisy being rewarded and praised. Does that sound familiar? The third is bad things happening to good people and good things happening to bad people. Do you recognize any of this? Do you feel any of this? Like, do you look at the world around you and scratch your head and you're like, oh my goodness, this is frustrating. This makes me angry and confused. Yet Solomon sets out to explain how it can be true that even in the midst of all of this, the wise can have a face that shines. And underlying all of what Solomon says is a foundational truth, and here it is. The wise trust that God is working in and through it all, even when they can't fully comprehend it. For each issue Solomon addresses, he brings God and all that he has done and all that he is doing and all that he will do onto the scene, and he insists that despite what we see going on out there, we can trust that God is at work. We can rest in the fact that he has got it all under control. See, wisdom calls our eyes to lift up from what's going on in here and see all of life in the context of eternity lived with God, the trustworthy one who holds all of time and eternity in his hands. And Solomon gives us three examples of how this plays out. We're just going to look at each one of them in turn. The first is this. The wise trust that God alone bestows authority So they submit to his leadership. One who is wise understands that those who are in authority hold their position of power purely at the prerogative and discretion of God. So they obey insofar as they are not asked to compromise and disobey God, something like that. 
In verses 2 through 9, the author paints this picture of a person who is in the king's court. And he hears all of these decisions that the king is making and these edicts that the king is passing down. And he doesn't like it. And he's frustrated. And it's not just because he doesn't like the policies that the king is issuing. It's because he's using his power to harm others. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Do we know anything about living under difficult political leaders? I, I'm really glad that we're like in the, in the first year of a new presidential, uh, a new presidential, whatever you call it, what, administration, there we go, the new president guy thing. Uh, so I'm really glad that we're in that first year because those of you who didn't like the previous administration can still feel the angst and the anger and the frustration that you felt there. But the rest of you who don't like the current administration feel afresh the new frustration and the new anger and the new angst. So we're all mutually angsty this morning. We all know what this man in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is feeling. And so what is Solomon's word to this guy? Notice what he says, verse 2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Pop quiz, what are we to do under a corrupt and harmful regime? What? Obey. Obey. You get a gold star. Somebody over here gets a, like a silver or bronze star because I kind of heard it real quietly. The rest of you failed the class. So try again next week, I suppose. Obey the king. Even when you disagree with him, don't storm off in haste. Don't go join the rebellion. I think that's what he's talking about when he says don't take your stand in an evil cause. Don't, don't join the rebellion who are planning to overthrow the king. Obey him. Why? What reason could Solomon have for this? Because of God's oath to him. Now some of your translations might read because of your oath to God. So Obey because the oath that you made to God. But either way you shake it, the instruction is still the same. To those who would be wise, obey earthly authority because you're bound by God to do so. Whether by your oath to God or God's oath to the king. Notice he doesn't say obey because he's the king you wanted in office. Or because he's a stand-up guy. Or because you think he's doing a real good job. Obey him because God put him there. I've got to say, there's, there's something that feels um, very un-American about this, right? Like, like something in me sort of pushes back and fights back when I read this. Like, I think this is a democracy. I put that guy in power, whoever is there. Like, we collect, I'm going to blame it on y'all. We put that guy in power, right? We do what authorities want us to, so long as it benefits us, so long as he's working towards our agenda, so long as we think the leader is doing a good job. And while, yes, there are certainly differences between the political systems of Solomon's day and the political systems of our day, the takeaway is the same. Obey those who God has placed in authority over you. It's echoed throughout the New Testament under Paul writing under a regime that was going to take his life. Obey the governing authorities. 
Not because you have tremendous respect for them or because you agree with them or because you think they're doing good for others. Obey them because God alone has put them there. And even as I wrote these words this week, I, I bristled up. Like there's, there's part of me that doesn't like it. I want to hear when there's an unjust king, do what you need to do. Right? Like that's, that's what I want. But then I remembered my own life and the authority that God has trusted to me as an imperfect father. Now, certainly that's on a much smaller scale, but it's been a trying couple of weeks. We've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and as of this coming Saturday, a three-year-old. It is an active home, to say the least. If you've been there, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Kidding. It's funny, this week I, I called somebody on the phone uh, who had come, and if you're in here, sorry, I'm going to tell this story. Uh, so I, I called them, and I said, hey, I saw you live on Keenan. And she said, yeah. I said, I'm the house with the three crazy kids. And she knew immediately which house was mine. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's where we're at. We're getting to that point in the summer where things are a little bit tense between our kids and, and us. They're ready to go back to school. Like if I'm honest, we're kind of ready for them to go back to school. We've had a tough couple of weeks, and I, as a dad, fail a lot. There are times that I don't respond well. There are times that I'm too gruff with my tone. I'm distracted, and so I don't give them the attention that they need. All sorts of stuff goes on. But even though I fail, I am still their God-given authority. They don't get to say, well, dad lost his cool earlier and he only gave us breakfast for dinner. Therefore, I don't have to listen to him. Don't call CPS. I didn't give them dinner or breakfast, whatever, cereal for dinner. Uh, I don't want to get in trouble. But so they can't say he's doing a bad job. Therefore, let's get rid of him. Why? Because I'm their God-given authority regardless of the quality of job that I'm doing. The same is true for those who are in authority over us. Now, certainly, we exercise our minds. We allow faith to impact the way that we vote. We don't disobey God to obey man. We don't turn our back on Christ for the sake of allegiance to our country. We can come up with all sorts of extremes that call for civil disobedience. I'm not saying this isn't there. I'm just saying that's not what Solomon has in mind. He has in mind the reality that those who are in authority are there because God put them there. And the wise obey those God has placed in authority because they trust that God is the ultimate authority. Even when we look at foolish leadership and scratch our heads and wonder things like this guy does in verse 4, what are you doing? We, who would be wise, submit to God's leadership in earthly leadership. Second, the wise trust that God alone is the just judge, so they fear God, and do what is right. Those who would be wise will avoid evil, even when doing evil is celebrated and praised by our culture. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So pondering the burial sites of the wicked, the author calls our attention to rampant hypocrisy in his day. The wicked would strut about going in and out of the temple and they were praised in the very city where they were known to be wicked people. 
People didn't care. In their pride, they puffed themselves up. Look at me. I'm significant. I've got some money. People love me. I have clout and social status. And they act this way. Why? Because they can. Because they can get away with it. Because there's no one there to stop them. Because all that's going to happen is they're just going to be praised all the more. The same attitude is alive and well today, both inside and outside of the church. It spans political parties. It spans causes. It spans movements. People parade around ensuring that their moral superiority is witnessed, making sure that their social activism via social media can be praised, making sure that you catch just the right soundbite, the clip that they wanted you to hear. Yeah, forget the rest of the conversation. We don't have time for thoughtful conversation. You've got time for a soundbite. That's what you need to pay attention to. And as we sit back and we watch, it is tempting to jump right in. Right? We try to get in on the action, try to be accepted, try to receive the praise of man by endorsing and joining in on the wickedness. But that is short-sighted. Notice Solomon says we need to keep our mind on the bigger picture. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. On Friday, Pastor Andy asked me a, a question that we regularly ask to one another on Fridays. You finished with the sermon yet? And I usually respond exactly like you did. Because I'm like, silly Andy, I'm never done with my sermons on Friday. That never happens. If you preach, you know that sermons aren't done until about 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon once you're done like beating yourself up about all the things you should have said and all the things you missed. Anyway, moving on, woe is me. But I shared with him a bit about where I thought we were headed, and he told me about a rope illustration that Francis Chan used at one point. So I I did what any self-respecting preacher would do. I went on YouTube, and I found the illustration from Francis Chan, and I stole it to give to you this morning. Self-respecting preacher, get it? Anyway, moving on. So I went and watched it, and I thought, wow, this is really powerful. So this isn't original to me, but suppose this rope went on forever. Like, it has a starting point here, and it goes on out into eternity. Now, suppose this rope is a timeline. This is your existence, right? Like, you have a birthday at the beginning, and then on out into eternity. You're going to live forever. The question is how and where. So it begins in the here and now, goes on forever. And suppose that uh, this little taped portion is the life that you live, as Solomon says, under the sun. This is your 60 or 80 or 100 years that you've got here in this world. When you look at it like this, which portion of the rope should you invest in? This little one or this big one? I didn't even tell her to say that. Good job, Hadley. I'll get you ice cream later. Anyway. Oh, you said big. Okay, you can have some ice cream too. That's fine. When you look at this rope, it's obvious 
This is just a little blip of time. This goes on forever and ever and ever. This is what we should invest in. Yet, here under the sun, we get so caught up, worried about this little portion right here. And we strive for acceptance and we praise the, and, and the praise of people and we look for the good life in the here and now in our, in our, by making money or by you know, leisure or by working or whatever it is, finding power. And so when we see rampant hypocrisy rewarded, we jump on the train because, hey, I want in on some of that so I can live the good life in the here and now. But that is foolish. Just look at this. This current existence is, is tiny compared to what's on the way. And how you live in this little bit of time, your 60, 80, or 100 years, however long the Lord gives you, will determine how you live forever. Are we willing to trade all of this for the praise of man here and now? Let me tell you, the praise of man will pale in comparison to getting to the end and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. One day we will have to pass from this portion of the rope to this portion of the rope across the boundary of death into eternity. And when we get there, we will stand before a holy God and he will ask us for an account of the things that we've done. And on that day we can say either, I sought the praise of people or I sought to live for you. I feared you, I lived before you, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I was upright before you. The wise trust that living eternally in the blessing presence of God is where the fullest joy is to be found. They understand that the praise of man doesn't hold a candle to what we'll receive as our reward. The wise trust that God is a just judge, so they don't, they don't live it up in this life, they're not trying to allow themselves to be consumed with finding satisfaction in the here and now. They take the whole rope into account, not just a little sliver. They fear God and they live upright lives before him. Solomon says, it will certainly be well with them. But for the wicked, it will not be well with them. And he doesn't flesh that out. But when somebody says, God's gonna get you and it won't be well with you, I'm concerned. Third, the wise trust that God has given us life as a gift so they pursue joy in a life lived with God. The observation that the wicked often prosper leads to another observation. Life often deals us an unfair hand. This brings up the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's corollary, why do good things happen to bad people? Look at verse 14. There is a vanity that takes, place under, or that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. From a pretty young age, children have a highly developed sense of fairness. In fact, one of our kids' favorite responses right now, let's see if you can guess it, that's not fair. That's not fair. Just the other day, the kids were telling me, that's not fair. And so I responded really quickly, life's not fair. And then a terrifying reality hit me. I'm becoming my parents. (laughs) But it's true. Like, life isn't fair. That's what Solomon observed. The righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. 
And it's not just in the small stuff, like so-and-so got the promotion that I deserved, or so-and-so cheats on his taxes, yet he always prospers financially, and I missed one thing, and I get a full audit from the IRS. It's more than that. Some dear friends of ours are dealing with some great, tragic unfairness right now. The father of this family, his name was Dale. He's one of the greatest men I ever knew. He was humble. He was Christ-like. He worked hard to support his family. He was a servant at the church. He had a genuine love for people. He was the kind of guy that would come over and help his wife watch our kids. Dale was an insurance salesman, and he would often stop at local parks between appointments and pray, sitting at a park bench as he journaled. What a beautiful thing to do with your spare moments between appointments during the day. But one day, as he sat in a park, and he prayed, and he journaled, a man who had been released early from prison decided he wanted Dale's truck. So he took Dale's life so that he could have Dale's truck. To make matters worse, the trial has been going on this summer. It just ended not long ago. Despite the fact that this man was a previously convicted felon, despite the fact that he confessed to what he had done to two other people, despite the fact that he originally pled guilty but changed his, ver- or changed his plea at the very end of, or at the very last minute, the jury came back and said, we can't reach a verdict. Declared a mistrial. They get one more chance to try this guy, and if they can't convict him this time, he walks free. There are the righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. How does this make any sense? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you wrap your mind around that? How do you get that? Like, how can that possibly be? And the truth is, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, in this reality is going to be with us until Jesus himself returns. But Solomon does give us some guidance as to what we are due when we see tragedies like this taking place all around us. Verse 15, and I commend joy. It's not an easy word to hear. In this circumstance, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the day's of his life that God has given him under the sun. Though life is fraught with injustice, we are told to find joy in God's provision. We eat and we drink and we enjoy the simple things in a life lived with God, trusting that that that's the highest satisfaction that we can possibly find on this side of eternity. We're simply not going to have all of the answers we want. That deep longing for justice that even children can sense will not be satisfied in this life. Nothing is going to scratch that itch. Nothing will perfectly satisfy our sense of fairness. And our hearts yearn for something beyond what this world can offer us. And while it's painful, that too is the grace of God to us. Because as C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... 
then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Hunger in this life is met with food. Thirst is met with water. Where does our longing for justice and peace and significance finally find its fulfillment? Not in this world. It leaves us longing for another one. That desire invites us to lift our eyes off of what is done under the sun and set our hope, not on anything here, but on Christ's return. Why? Because it is only in that day that the foolish governing authorities will be abolished once and for all. And the one true king will take his throne among us and he will rule with perfect justice. It's only in that day that hypocrisy will be once and for all banished. The wicked will no longer be celebrated and praised and the righteous will receive their reward. And it's only in that day that the wicked will receive their due and the righteous will have their greatest longings for peace and significance and justice totally satisfied in an eternity spent with our Savior. Until then, we trust that this life is a gift. So we pursue joy in a life lived with God through Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, I pray that you have come to realize today that his life, or that this life, will just leave you wanting. I hope that you come to understand that there is not enough money, enough power, enough substances in this world to satisfy that hole in your heart. But Jesus can. If you'll turn away from your sin and trust in him today, he will forgive you, he will give you his righteousness, and he will make you a child of God. Here in a moment when we're praying, if you're ready to receive him today, cry out to him, confess him as Lord, receive him as your savior, allow him to make you one of his children. This is a gospel community prayer Sunday, but Rather than split up in different parts of the building, I'd, I'd like for us to pray uh, here in this room all together in groups of two or four or eight or 20, I don't care, just group up like thick pancake mix or something, I don't know, clump together. Uh, Ecclesiastes is not an easy word to receive, right? Like it's not a, an easy message for our hearts. And so I want us to sit in it for a minute. And I want us to ask God to examine our lives and to help us live like there's more to life than what goes on here under the sun. Let's just take a moment in our groups, listen for how the Spirit would have us to pray with and for one another. Life can harden our face, so we want to take this opportunity to lift one another up. There's going to be a few prayer prompts up on the screen. You don't have to use them, but you're certainly welcome to. And if you're uncomfortable praying in a group, that's okay. Just sit there, pray along in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. Let's just take a few minutes to pray together before we take communion.